Greetings, Gothamites. Lane here. Welcome to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. This is Book 1, Episode 2. Our current book is the novelization of the 1989 Batman, written by Craig Shaw Gardner. In this episode, we'll be discussing chapters 3, 4, and 5. So an interesting thing happened to me a couple weeks ago that a little bit ties in with, uh, I think it's chapter 5. So even though I live out in the countryside, I pretty much have zero outdoor storage. I have a a shed. It used to be a shed. It's probably going on 40 years old, and it's being held together by cobwebs, spiders holding hands, and the love of a mouse family. The doors fell off of it maybe 15 years ago. So in short, it's definitely not any adequate structure to store anything and protect it from the elements or potential thieves. In fact, I've never had anything stolen out of it. I think would-be thieves kind of feel sorry for me. And so a couple weeks ago, I took the financial plunge and went to a place that sold Amish-built outbuildings. They had these cabins, they had sheds, and mini barns. And the mini barn is basically a shed with a loft, so it's just a tall shed. So I picked out this cute little red-brown mini barn, 8 feet wide, 12 feet long, and 11 feet high, because it's got that little loft. After the transaction was finished and the paperwork was filled out, delivery instructions, all that jazz, uh, the gentleman and I were were mid-conversation, so I walked out with him while he locked up the building and marked it with a duct tape X to show that it was sold. Before he locked it, he opened it up to hang the extra set of keys inside. And what is inside on the floor but a single card from a deck of playing cards? What card? A joker. So that was a little random. The guy took the card away. I I should have had him just leave it there. Maybe I would have nailed it up to the, the wall. After finding that joker there, he's like, let me check the loft and make sure there's no surprises up there. Because sometimes people kind of hunker down on these things. It's like, yeah, do that. <laughs> Go ahead and check that for me. I don't want to find any surprises up there. Other than the Joker card, nothing else was in there. From henceforth, the shed shall be known as the Joker Shed. And I cannot wait for it to get delivered next week because I am, I kid you not, storing a lawnmower inside my house. Let's move on to chapter three. And what I tend to do is, instead of synopsizing the entire chapter at once, I go scene by scene, so it's more easily digestible parts. However, chapter 3, 95% of the chapter is one scene, so I'm just going to blow through and synopsize the whole thing at once. So here's the first paragraph. Uh, well, the first two paragraphs. The, the first paragraph is only five words. Quote, Wayne Manor was something else. Not that Vicky Vale was easily impressed. Her photography had taken her inside castles and palaces to meet with kings and queens. Wayne Manor wasn't quite in that league. It was merely very large and elegantly appointed. Still, there was something about this place, with its high ceilings and acres of carved mahogany, something that spoke of history and purpose. Wayne Manor might not have been Buckingham Palace, but it was as close as one could get in the States to that feeling of royalty. Unquote. While Vale is only moderately impressed with Wayne Manor, Alexander Knox, who apparently goes by Allie, is obviously not used to rubbing well-tailored elbows with Gotham's elite, as he looks, quote, a little conspicuous wandering around in that Sears special polyester blend suit in a room full of tuxedos, unquote. The room that they are in is the Grand Ballroom, 
as large as some concert halls, according to Vale, and it is decked out as a casino where Gotham's elite sit gambling away their money for charity. Vale has been trying her darndest to track down which one of these people is Bruce Wayne. She notices a handsome, dark-haired man sign something, and before he can find an adequate place to stash the pen, a thin, gray-haired, aesthetic fellow takes the pen off him. Vale thinks the older man might be some sort of butler, but isn't quite sure if butlers even exist anymore. Moments later, she helps the butler by stopping two glasses from tipping off his tray when he misjudges the weight of the empty glasses he's been collecting. Soon after this, she asks the dark-haired fellow if he knows which one of these guys is Bruce Wayne. A bit startled, he replies, Uh, I'm not sure. She thanks him anyway, then sees that Knox has managed to corner Commissioner Gordon and his wife by the crap tables. By the time Vale is in earshot, Gordon, who is losing his patience, is telling Knox, For the ninth time, there is no bat. If there were, we would find him. We would arrest him. Knox switches his attention to Harvey Dent, who has just joined them. When Knox asks Dent about the bat, Dent replies smoothly, Mr. Knox, we have enough real problems in the city without having to worry about ghosts. Gordon is pulled away by a patrolman. Knox and Vale share a glance and make an unspoken agreement to tail Gordon, but the two become lost almost immediately in Wayne Manor. They wander through a door at random and find a room filled with what seems to be every weapon known to man. Knox wonders aloud what kind of guy this Bruce Wayne is when the door opens behind them, revealing the good-looking, dark-haired fellow in the tux. Vale guesses that he is lost as well. She detects, quote, a wandering soul, some little boy lost quality, unquote, that she finds appealing. When the tuxedoed man tells them the origin of a Japanese sword and then confirms their suspicions, the two journalists realize they are in the presence of Bruce Wayne himself. Introductions are made. Vale asks if he is sure this time that he is Bruce Wayne. He replies with a grin, and, quote, Vicky realized he could get away with a lot with a smile like that, unquote. Bruce compliments the works of both Vale and Knox, to which Knox replies, Great, give me a grant. The conversation is interrupted when a wine steward approaches, asking Bruce for permission to open five more cases of champagne. Bruce says to make it six, all the while leaving an impression with Vale that he is distracted and absent-minded, even forgetting where he is. When the conversation resumes, Vale reveals that she'll be staying in town for a little while due to Allie's giant bat story. Again, the conversation is interrupted, this time by a departing couple who thank Bruce for the lovely party. After a moment of seeming uncertainty, he calls them both by name and waves as they depart. The conversation begins again. Bruce questions Vale's choice in topic, being the giant bat, considering her background in photojournalism in the war zones. Before the conversation can go much further, they are interrupted yet again, this time by the butler who informs that Commissioner Gordon was compelled to leave. Bruce seems to dismiss this until the butler says, <clears throat> Sir, very unexpectedly. Bruce takes the hint, excuses himself from Vale and Knox, but just before he leaves, he tells Alfred to give Knox a grant. He throws a wink at Knox has his direction corrected by Alfred because he apparently was about to go the wrong way, and departs. Once he's gone, Knox notes the abundance of mirrors and wonders if instead his name should be Bruce Vane. We switch to Bruce's point of view for this last little bit of the chapter. We learn that the abundance of mirrors actually hides video surveillance equipment behind one-way glass. Bruce is at a monitor, and when he finds the point where the patrolman approaches Gordon, he hears this conversation. 
Rusten Peace Theater is proud to present the conversation overheard by Bruce between Gordon and that cop. Anonymous tip. Napier's cleaning out Axis chemicals. Good lord. If we could put our hands on him, we'd have Grissom. Why wasn't I told about this? Who's in charge of the- Eckert, sir. Oh my god. Bruce decides it's time to head to the cave. So my notes on this chapter. Uh, we get to see Wayne Manor for the first time. I think that this charitable casino gathering is a good introduction for it. I'm surprised that Alexander Knox goes by Ally. I don't think I've ever heard that that form of Alex. There's Al, Alex, Alexander. I've heard Xander. I've never heard Allie. That might just be me, though. I kind of remember Michael Keaton's performance of this flaky side of Bruce Wayne. He has a knack for playing that sort of character. There's a certain quality in his eyes that he can tap. Uh, sometimes crazy hair doesn't hurt, and his mannerisms. I also remember Knox and Vale entering the room with the weapons. Again, I haven't seen this, you know, I, I saw this movie when I was a kid, when it came out in theaters, and then just a few years after that. Last time I saw this movie, it was on VHS. So I am very much looking forward to uh, me and Jeej sitting down with the movie and doing a commentary episode when we're finished with the book. Uh, the tray tipping scene with Vale and Alfred, my first thought was, Alfred would never, never allow that to happen. But of course, you know, Alfred's human. It doesn't matter if he's been a butler for, you know, 40 years. Things happen. Still, it is stretching the suspension of disbelief a little bit. I mean, it's Alfred for crying out loud. Anyway, that little scene just kind of serves to show us how observant Vale is. She doesn't have lightning quick reflexes. She just happened to notice that uh, the tray was tipping and glasses were sliding and she was close enough where she could step in and, and prevent the first two glasses from sliding off the tray. And that's all the help that he needed. He corrected the tray almost immediately. Good on you, Vicky Vale. And kind of touching back on Michael Keaton's performance, I love this portrayal of an absent-minded Bruce Wayne. He's always described as a playboy or a bored playboy or generally just being a bored womanizer. We don't see a lot of that here. When it's described that his focus clears when he remembers the names of the departing guests, I don't know if he really didn't remember their names at first and he had to recall it, or if he is that good of an actor, if he's that good at keeping up this facade. I lean a little bit more toward the latter, but again, I'm not sure. To me, that would make it even more unbelievable that Bruce Wayne could be Batman. I mean, he starts to go the wrong way in his own house, and it doesn't seem to be a gag or a put-on. It's genuinely believable. How could someone like that be Batman? So again, it's a wonderful facade. The hidden cameras surprise me a bit, a little Big Brother-y, but considering the type of people who might attend functions like these, it's not an awful idea. I do feel bad for the staff, though all two of them. So hopefully these cameras are perhaps only really used when there's a lot of people in the house. Speaking of staff, a wine steward. I don't see the need for a full-time wine steward in Wayne Manor, so my guess is he was probably hired for the evening. Okay, we'll take a quick promo break here and then come back to start chapter four. So what day? 
My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spy, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Bats lovers. Welcome back to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. Let's dive into Chapter 4. Quote, Jack didn't like this one bit. He hadn't had to handle this kind of a job in years. Breaking and entering, petty theft, you paid guys to do those things for you, and you expected those guys to take the fall if they got caught. Unquote. Obviously, the first scene in Chapter 4 is from Jack's point of view. Up to now, the job has gone off without a hitch, but Jack can't shake the uneasy feeling that leaves him wondering if he shouldn't make his move to overtake Grissom's position sooner rather than later. With a silk handkerchief over his nose and mouth to try to protect against the fumes, Jack watches as one of his boys uses a blowtorch to cut through the safe. When the safe is finally opened, Jack's unease is validated. The safe is empty, and alarms begin to blare. Jack and his cronies make their way down from the second-story office, but a dozen cops are already waiting for them on the floor of the refinery. The two sides begin trading bullets. Jack sees that the only possible escape was to use the catwalks. He runs across them, dodging bullets that pierce pipes that begin to leak fluids, quote, in every unnatural shade of green and red and purple and brown, unquote. Jack has no option but to run through the unknown chemicals. A couple of notes about this scene. So this is quite the contrast from the opening of Chapter 3 when we're at a charity function in Wayne Manor. Here we're in in Axis Chemicals amidst dangerous people who are committing crimes. Yeah, just a little bit different. It was also interesting to note the fumes, the mention of fumes. If you listen to the last episode, and this this is something I'll do whenever we start a new book, I talk about the author. So in the last episode, I talked a little bit about Craig Shaw Gardner and how he grew up in a, a suburb of Rochester, New York. And they were near the, the Eastman Kodak company. And sometimes they were downwind of, uh, one of like their, their chemical distilleries. And it, it was pretty noxious. I really get a little bit of a, a hand of the writer here that he's writing what he knows. Novelizations can add a layer that you can't get in television and movies. Television, movies, of course, it's a visual medium. 
you are watching what you see in the scene, you're listening to dialogue, to background noises, but very rarely do you hear a character talk about what they're smelling, what something feels like, what something tastes like. It's added here and there, but it always has to be voiced by the actor, which can make it seem a little bit awkward, but there's really not any any choice. If you've ever listened to radio dramas, uh, which I I sometimes love listening to some old-time radio, especially the detective radio shows, because that is only an audio medium and we don't have the visual aspect of it, oftentimes the actors will kind of describe what they see. In natural conversation, it would seem it would seem forced, it would seem unnatural. But because of what radio is, it was a necessary sacrifice to having naturalistic conversation so that they could get the, the scene to the audience. They had to fill in for the, the audience's eyes. In a book, that can be uh, teased out in the narrative rather than relying on a person saying something, which makes it seem more subtle and more natural. Again, I haven't seen the movie in a long time. I don't know if they say anything about the fumes. Uh, it's very possible that, that Jack Napier will hold the handkerchief over his nose and mouth. So that would be enough to show us as the audience that something is unpleasant in the air. But again, with the novelization, you just get that little bit more, a little extra to kind of fill in the pieces we would miss. In the next scene, Gordon, accompanied by 50 hand-picked men, breached the Axis Chemical Company. Quote, he would get to the bottom of this, even if he had to shoot Eckert personally. Unquote. The lieutenant in question is standing in the center of the cops, who are already at the scene. Gordon demands to know what the hell is going on, but considering that Eckert is already on a list and is days away from having charges filed against him, and the information that the informant has given them, the commissioner can make an educated guess. Eckhart demands to know if Gordon is trying to ruin their arrest, but Gordon tips his cards, telling him that he is in charge, not Grissom. This gets a very visible reaction from the lieutenant. Gordon turns to shout orders to the other cops that Napier is to be brought in alive under no uncertain terms, and when he turns back around, Eckhart is gone. Uh, yeah, get used to that, Kamish. So that's the end of that scene. So just a couple notes here. Gordon on a warpath is a mighty thing to behold. I certainly would not want to be the object of his wrath. And Eckert. <laughs> if Eckert is able to disappear out from under Gordon's nose, then it's not quite as impressive when Batman does it, is it? <laughs> Gordon, you should really keep your eye on who you're talking to. So the next scene, we're back to Jack's point of view as he makes his way down the final set of metal stairs. With nursery rhymes rattling through his head, he reflects on the special words he likes to use when he kills people. You ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? Jack wins his way around strange machinery, throwing switches here, twisting dials there, anything to cause chaos that might cause enough of a diversion to allow him to escape. The ground trembles with the action of the machines, but Jack's focus is on escape. Without escape, he cannot get revenge. End scene? So we get the first appearance of Jack Napier's quote, You ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? Since there was a mention of nursery rhymes, I did a quick search to see if that phrase it was actually taken from some obscure nursery rhyme. But it looks like, nope, it actually originated with this movie. It's a good phrase. I like it. 
I remember a child me really loving that that phrase. We ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? I could appreciate the poetry and darkness in that. Next scene, with the sounds of gunfire and human cries of pain and anger, Gordon feels like he is walking into hell. There isn't enough light to properly see by, and the smoky air smells of acid. A scream from overhead reveals a figure slumped against the railing of a catwalk, and others running from their companion. It's at this time that Gordon catches the hint of a movement, a flash of yellow in the darkness. Gordon realizes now that the two men who were running across the catwalk had been running from the newcomer. When one points a gun at the mysterious figure, the figure fires some sort of weapon that leaves the gunman dangling thirty feet in the air. Gordon's gaze follows from the gunman, travels up the rope, until it finds a man dressed as a bat. Hey, my notes on that little scene. So other than the 66 Batman, because that one operated in broad daylight, I've never liked bright colors on Batman's suit. Batman lurks in shadows. He uses darkness as a cloak to stalk his prey. Having a bright yellow emblem, even though most of his costume is black, the fact that Gordon sees that flash of yellow in the darkness just proves my point. So stick with the dark colors there, B-Man. I like that Gordon automatically decides that it's a man dressed as a bat and not a supernatural creature. This kind of nods towards his logic and intelligence and how he's not going to be swayed by superstition and fear as um, some other people are. He goes straight for what the most likely answer is, and that's what he runs with. So the next scene, Jack feels like he has been running forever. He has a glimmer of hope when a door begins to rise, but he sees 20 pairs of legs clad in police-issue trousers on the other side. He decides on the stairs again, searching for a window from which he might escape. Then he spots a fire axe, and then a potential new diversion. A rusted steel tank near the stairs that bears the words, Danger, highly toxic. He swings the axe into the largest patch of rust, which surely would not pass inspection. The spewing liquid prevents the cops from closing the distance to him. Jack hears the sound of rushing water, and he realizes that he must be near the factory sluice gates. He runs toward the window, but sees that his path is going to take him beneath two spotlights. He's going to be an open target, but he has no choice. He makes a run for it, and he makes it to the window, without a single shot being fired in his direction. He starts to think that he'll actually make it. He's almost home free when someone grabs him. Someone who is trying to subdue him in some sort of wrestling move. However, good old Bob down below has a gun on Gordon, and he says to Jack's attacker, Let him go, or I'll do Gordon. The hold is released, and Jack turns around to see a guy who's about six feet tall or so in a bat costume. Jack compliments the outfit, and Bob yells for Jack to get a move on. Jack sees a thirty-eight that has been dropped during the confusion. He sees Eckert, and he picks up the gun and yells, Eckert, think about the future, and then he shoots the dirty cop dead. Jack turns the gun on Gordon, but the bat makes a move. Jack fires at him, but the bullet ricochets off the costume and hits Jack in the face. He falls backward over the railing, but just manages to grab the catwalk's edge. He loses his grip on the catwalk, and then on the pipe that he managed to grab. By this time, the bat has a hold of him, but the hold is tenuous, one that he cannot maintain. Jack Napier falls, screaming, into a vat of bubbling chemicals. End scene. Um, Jack is not having a good night, is he? But I'm curious about Grissom's decision here. Okay, so so Grissom wanted Jack out of the way. All right, that I understand. 
And he also needed the um, incriminating evidence from Axis Chemical taken care of. That I understand as well. My confusion is, one, where is the evidence? I'm guessing Grissom had somebody else clean it out before they got there. That could be. And why didn't Grissom just have one of his hitmen take care of Jack quietly somewhere? Or maybe even send a couple of his men in as quote-unquote help for this, and then once they got there, they could take care of Jack and Bob and anyone else in his group who would not switch loyalties to Grissom. The idea of sending in the GCPD, even though they were all dirty cops, there were too many variables. It's not certain that Jack would have gotten killed in this. So why would Grissom want to call attention to Axis Chemicals when he suspects that there already is attention that way? And why would he select a manner that would cause chaos and, and potentially not get him the ends that he wants? And this is illustrated when Gordon finds out about the shootout. And yes, while Eckert was leading the charge of men and probably would have done his best to take out Jack, it was still a messy way to to get rid of somebody, especially when there is obviously a leak and the information got to Gordon and he brought in some of the other GCPD, those whom he handpicked personally, who he trusted, and who would help him take care of the situation. So Ecker is dead, and that brings me to the second problem I have with this scene. Batman was close enough to, to Napier to have had his arms around him, and when, when Bob threatened Gordon, presumably Batman just took a, a, a couple steps back. When Napier raised his gun to shoot Gordon, Batman acted. He drew his fire, and you know that's what caused the ricochet and subsequently Jack falling into the chemicals. My question is this. Why did Batman stand there and let Jack shoot Eckert? Yes, Eckert was a dirty cop, but that seems very uncharacteristic of Batman. I don't see him ever standing by and letting anybody get shot. If someone were trying to shoot the Joker, he would try to stop it. So I'm not sure why he didn't do anything to prevent Eckert from being shot. Was it a case of, I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you, like we saw in uh, one of the Nolan films? But even then, one, that bit was kind of controversial. And two, he saved that fate for one of the biggest bads in his life, Ra's al Ghul. So I don't think just a dirty cop who is on the payroll of a local crime boss, I don't see Batman seeing him as someone who deserves to die. Next scene, Gordon, having just witnessed Jack's fate, reflects that no one, not even Napier, should die like that. With Napier gone, the police now had their guns trained on the Batman. Two cops flanked the intruder on either end of the catwalk, trapping him. Batman raises his hands, but then flicks something at a nearby wall. Bright flashes and white smoke disorient the police, but one manages to see the Batman grappling toward a window, and he is gone. Gradually, the GCPD regain control of the remains of the situation and arrest the gunmen who are surrendering. Quote, this night had given Gordon a lot more questions than answers, and with Eckert and Napier dead, there were probably some things he would never find out. End quote. So I just have one a quick note for that uh, for that scene. Now a good chunk of the GCPD have laid eyes on Batman for themselves. Now for the final scene of the chapter. First, it had only been his face, but now every inch of Jack was on fire. 
While he had indeed fallen into the vat of bubbling chemicals, he hadn't stayed there. He had been emptied through the sluice gate and fallen forty feet into the East River. Through it all, and even though he is still struggling against the current of the toxic river and fighting for his life, Jack realizes he still has his deck of cards in his hand. One by one, however, the current of the river pulls the deck away until only one card is left. The Seven of Hearts. Just kidding. Of course, it's the Joker. And that is the end of Chapter 4. The deck being stripped away until only a Joker is left... That feels a little heavy-handed to me, but hey, it's comic book logic, even if this isn't a comic book per se. I'm not sure if this origin story has ever made an appearance in comics before here, Uh, so if anyone knows, please let me know. I know that the Joker, his origin story pretty much always involves him falling into a vat of chemicals, but I don't know how he got the name Joker, how he chose that. Was there indeed a Joker card uh, with him when he came out of the chemicals? Let me know. So we're going to take a break for our second promo. And when we get back, we'll move on to Chapter 5. Hi, this is Derek. Hi, this is John. Hi, this is Chris. And we're the hosts of Defenders TV Podcast, the podcast about the Marvel Netflix shows, where we talk about everything from Daredevil, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Jessica Jones, and The Punisher. Yes, and we have a whole history of back catalogue where you can go listen to. But this year, coming up in 2019, we have some interesting ones that you can prep yourself for. Yeah, so come join us for all things Marvel Netflix and, of course, The Punisher out in 2019 over at com. Welcome back. So let's dive into Chapter 5, just as Jack Napier dove into the vat of chemicals. Okay, maybe not quite like that, but... Anyway, so here are the first few lines of the chapter. Quote, Batman foils robbery. Jack Napier dead. Who is masked vigilante? Alexander Knox had never seen anything sweeter than those headlines. Gordon would have to tell him the truth now. Unquote. Knox is on the phone with said Commissioner Gordon, asking him, If there's no Batman, then who dropped this guy Napier into the acid? Wait a minute, I want to get this on tape. And Gordon hangs up on him. This doesn't bother Knox, however, because he knows his quarry can run, but he cannot hide. Vale comes into the office and begins tacking up a series of aerial photos and makes a sort of mosaic map. Bob the cartoonist comes in also and, with a grin, tacks up a picture of his own, a drawing of the Batman with his arm on Knox's shoulder. Vale calls Knox over to the board, where she has been placing yellow pins. She tells Knox that these represent Batman sightings, and wonders if the Batman has some sort of flight pattern. Knox thinks that this is a great idea, and suggests that they cover those locations tonight. But Vale says, uh, perhaps tomorrow, because tonight she has a date with Bruce Wayne. Knox, feeling a pang of jealousy, tells her that a date is when two people enjoy their time together, and that Bruce Wayne only enjoys his own company. Vale kisses Knox on the brow and tells him that he is sweet to be concerned, and then she leaves. Knox wonders what Bruce has that he doesn't, except maybe money and a fabulous mansion and money and blue blood breeding and money and social connections and even more money, and now he was going to get the girl too? That wasn't fair. Allie decides that private people sometimes need to be dragged out into the public's eye, and he calls the morgue for everything they have on Bruce Wayne. Hey, my notes for that scene. I'm curious why Knox is so certain that Batman foiled the robbery. Was there any evidence of that? I mean, we as the readers, as the audience, we of course know that Batman was was doing something heroic. But does Batman have that reputation around the city yet, that he's a crime fighter? 
I mean, perhaps it's there, but it just seems like a little bit of a leap to say that Batman foiled the robbery when there were probably a total of about 90 cops there with Gordon's 50, however many Eckert had with him. I would say that would be a good way to foil a robbery also. At least Knox thinks that Batman is a crime fighter, so that's good press. He also believes that he is a masked man. Even though the rumors of Batman being a supernatural creature, of being something that will drain the blood of those he throws off of roofs, Knox doesn't fall for the superstitious side of it. Kind of like Gordon. Vale, on the other hand, she mentions flight patterns. So perhaps she kind of maybe buys into this idea that he's a supernatural creature, a creature of the air that would follow would follow things like flight patterns. Next scene. Despite having traipsed the world as a photojournalist, Vale has experienced nothing as nice as riding on horseback with Bruce around the fields behind Wayne Manor. Quote, the late summer air cut by the first breezes of autumn, the setting sun turning the entire world to red and gold. Unquote. Bruce is riding a black stallion with a hint of white, and Vale is on a frisky strawberry roan. Vale tells Bruce that he's not bad on a horse, but Bruce says he always falls off and has a big mass of bruises. And of course, we as fans of Batman pick up that he's probably selling himself short to keep up this facade. Uh, chances are, if he were as unskilled of a rider as that, it might not be a good idea to be riding a stallion. He would probably be better off with a gelding. A little flirting and teasing ensues once they get back to the stables, and they head back toward the main house. We're privy to Vicky Vale's thoughts of, quote, There is something about you, Bruce Wayne, something that tries to be very hard, almost impenetrable, but is really very, very vulnerable. When he picked up on her innuendo moments before, his response hadn't been the blundering sexual come-on she might get from an Allie Knox. With Bruce, the comments seemed more of a defense mechanism, as if he had something to hide. Eventually, the pair make their way to the patio and sit. Alfred brings them a bottle of champagne before disappearing again into the house. Bruce struggles with the cork, but finally manages to open it. Alfred is back moments later, clearing his throat to get Bruce's attention, to tell him that the Historical Society has called to remind him of the banquet. Bruce instructs his butler to tell them that yes, he will be there. At the butler's retreat, Bruce tells Vale that he wouldn't be able to find his socks without Alfred, who's been with the family since Bruce was born. Bruce can't quite stifle a yawn and apologizes to Vale and explains he has a lot going on. She tries to ask what types of things, but he changes the subject and asks Vale to tell him about herself. She says that she loves taking photos and feels naked without a camera. We learn that Bruce has just turned 35. And we also learned that Vale one day just picked up and left her fashion photography career. Bruce asks what she saw. She replies, a lot of hotels, a little terror, a little love once in a blue moon. Realizing that she has been monologuing, Vale says, You're very elusive, Mr. Wayne. I feel there's a lot going on in there. He replies, oh, not really. But he goes on to say how he was just thinking of how beautiful she looked on the horse and that it was nice to have someone who notices things. Vale takes Bruce's hand, and they watch the sunset. Some time passes, and Vale has apparently gotten herself hammered on champagne, because the only way she can stop herself from falling is to hang on Bruce's arm. When Bruce leads her inside, she waves to the grand double staircases. Vale says she feels like she is in Paris in the 30s, then wonders aloud how it is she's half drunk, and he's not even but she stumbles before she can finish the thought. 
Bruce catches her again and says, Two drinks and I'm flying. Why are you afraid of flying? Vale whispers. And they kiss. In scene, in chapter. So I'm curious about the date with Vale and the romantic afternoon with Bruce, but I'll get to that in a second. I just have a minor nitpick with one sentence. With Bruce, the comment seemed more of a defense mechanism, as if he had something to hide. Again, a little heavy-handed. We didn't need the, as if he had something to hide. That's a little bit like spoon-feeding us. It could have just been left with, with Bruce, the comment seemed more of a defense mechanism. We can plug in the rest for ourselves. I like Vale's insight, her ability to, to pick up on things. I think in other, in other connotations of this character, she's usually a TV journalist. I really like that she is a photojournalist. I'm not sure how often that shows up in the comics or if it ever does. This also gives her the chance to work with Alexander Knox. That way he can work on writing the story. She can photograph the story. So they can pair up without stepping on each other's toes or getting territorial about the story. Again, I'm really looking forward to seeing the 89 Batman again when Jeej and I do our commentary episode. So I don't remember a whole lot of Kim Basinger's performance of Vicky Vale. I'm not sure why Bruce is bothering with, with Vale. While Bruce is not a monk, he shies away from any sort of uh, in-depth relationship. He believes that any sort of romance, any sort of relationship will get in the way, will be a distraction to his life as Batman. And of course, he doesn't want anybody to get hurt. But I can see a, a couple of potential reasons why he is, uh, he's pursuing Vicky Vale, or at least responding to her advances. One could be the fact that she's going to be in Gotham temporarily. This could act as a built-in kill switch for the relationship. They could be together, they can enjoy each other's company, and then, oops, three months have elapsed, I have to go back to where I was before, or I have to go to a, an assignment somewhere on the other side of the world, and it would be an easy way to break off the relationship. The second reason why I believe uh, Bruce might be kind of getting friendly with Vale, she outright told him that the reason she's in Gotham is to find out about the Batman that people have been seeing. Bruce knows that Knox and Vale, they're both good at what they do, and they could potentially dig something up. Maybe he wants to keep Vale close so he can, can kind of judge where they are on their investigation. He can kind of learn what she knows, perhaps gently direct her away from him if she starts getting too close. That could be a smart reason for, for getting involved with Vale. Either way, she's stumbling drunk after the champagne, and that kiss had better not go any farther than a kiss. Even though she likely would, would be a willing partner if she were sober, she's not sober. I hope that Bruce Wayne recognizes this and doesn't go any further. And this just isn't a guy and gal thing. This would be the, this would be the same thing if Bruce were drunk and Vicky were sober. You don't take advantage of someone when their inhibitions have been clouded, especially when this is a first date. I have no idea what happens after the scene, but if they end up sleeping together, I will I will kind of lose a little respect for Bruce Wayne in this book at least. But so I, I've got my fingers crossed that nothing happens. So that's all I have for chapters three, four, and five. Next time we'll cover chapters six, seven, and eight. Thank you again for listening to Batman Books, The Dark Knight and Prose. I've been your host, Lane. 
Until next time, happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger.